This program is presented by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Hi, everyone. I'm Sarah Gregory, and today I'm talking with Dr. David Morins, Senior Advisor to the Director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases and Associate Editor of the EID Journal, and Dr. Rohit Shatali, who is a Senior Consultant to PATH at an NGO in Seattle. They will be remembering their late colleague, Dr. Myron Mike Schultz, who was an epidemiologist in CDC's Global Disease Detection Program, as well as a huge supporter of the EIG Journal and authored most of our fun photo quizzes. Welcome, Dr. Morins and Dr. Chitali. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Sarah. Delighted to be here. So let's talk about Dr. Schultz. Well, great. Well, thanks. Uh, I'm really, this is Rohit Chitali, and I'm delighted to be here on this podcast with, with David. And, um, you know, my, uh, I'll tell you just briefly my uh, association with Mike and tell you more about it throughout the podcast. But basically, my interaction with Mike initially was with the Global Disease Detection Operations Center when we had started the Operations Center in 2000, uh, 2006, and we hired Mike in 2008. Um, and I'll, I'll talk more about that. But I'd like to, um, Actually, maybe just ask David, if you don't mind, um, tell, telling me a little bit about how you met Mike, because you've known Mike much longer, I think, than I have. So maybe you can, maybe you can tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, thanks, Ro, and uh, hi to you and to Sarah. It's, uh, like you, it's a great uh, honor to be able to talk about our friend Mike and, uh, and remember him. Uh, and uh, my, my story is I go back a little bit farther than you, Ro. I met Mike around the time I started in the EIS, the Epidemic Intelligence Service at CDC, and that was 1976. And um, back then, maybe still now, but back then, EIS officers coming to CDC in July had to take a three-week EIS course. And in those days, Mike was um, very much involved with EIS office. He, he loved to interact with young scientists. He loved to be involved in the training. And somewhere, I don't remember the exact time, but very shortly after I got to CDC, I met Mike and got to know him. And then during my two years in Atlanta in the EIS, I interacted with him. We had, we had these weekly meetings in, I think it was Auditorium B in the old Building 1, which doesn't exist anymore. Um, and he would always be at those meetings, usually sitting in the back quietly. But he would uh, love to interact with people, and he just became, he was a friendly, supportive presence, and I think he became the friend of many of us just sort of by osmosis. And, um, you know, it was just, it was almost like he was always there and always a friend and always interacting with us. Yeah, thanks, David. That, that's, uh, yeah, it's, um, you're bringing back a lot of memories um, for me as well, but, but mine, of course, is, as you said rightly, were after, a little bit after yours. You know, so... That's kind of, the, I guess, what set the stage um, for Mike to get to where he was when, when we met. And um, that was technically in the summer of 2008, um, which seems like a long time ago, but maybe it wasn't that long ago. But um, basically in summer of 2008, we were about a year and a half into the start of the Global Disease Detection Operations Center, um, which was this cutting-edge novel um, center at CDC started by Dr. Scott Dowell and Dr. Ray Arthur to essentially pull together uh, almost the concept of One Health, kind of the really one look at um, diseases through the lens of 
uh, human medicine, animal medicine, and population medicine. So the, the center was created in 2006, and in 2008, we, we basically we only had myself as a Ph.D. scientist. So we had slots for an MD and a DVM. So we're interviewing for these positions, and I remember being on the application on the um, interview panel along with Scott and Ray and looking at a whole bunch of, um, you know, USA Jobs uh, applications. And there are a lot of really good qualified candidates, but one of them really stood out, and it was Mike, 25-page CV, overwhelming, um, you know, just awards and EIS officers trained and FETP graduates trained and, and papers, et cetera. And I was like, who is this guy? <laughs> but Scott and Ray were also really impressed, so we decided to, uh, to interview him. Um, clearly, we felt, oh, he was overqualified, but we were also wondering, well, why does he want to do this, this position? So we, um, we, we interviewed him. And, I mean, I have a very fond memory of this because we interviewed him in Scott's office, and it was the three of us and, and Mike. Um, he was clearly the oldest candidate but he was uh, very well-dressed in a suit and tie. And um, I just remember asking him, I'm like, well, so look, would you be okay, you know, taking some direction from a more junior scientist, myself, and working in a really fast-paced environment in the emergency operations center because that's where the, um, the GDD operations center was based. And that was just, um, and, you know, he was like, you know, I, I think so. I, I'm very excited about the challenge. And so Scott said, why don't you take him down to the EOC and so we took him down to EOC, and I just one of my one of my also fond memories is when he said, "So this is the the emergency operations center. Where 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 is our office? Where is the office?" I said, "Well, this is the office." And and, and he said to me, where, "Where do you rest during the day?" And I just remember I said, "Well, we don't really rest here." But in the end, sort of this <laughs> long story short, long story short, he ended up joining us. We got him his own office as well, so he had two spaces, and. Um, you know, he would write the in memoriams for EID, and, and he would, you know, he would do other work. And so the rest is history. But it, it was a really great start to, to bringing him on, and, and you know, it, it had lots of um, lots of benefits over time. So that's kind of how I initially met Mike. Um, excuse me for just leaping in here with a question, but Dr. Chitali, um after him saying he wasn't sure about the stamina issue, and he wanted his own office, and to rest, and you know, certainly EOC is not known for rest periods. Um, why did why did you choose him? Right, exactly. Um, well, I think that that's a test, testament to to Mike. You know, the, the Latin phrase "primus inter pares" first among equals. We were all, you know, GS fourteen scientists, so in a sense, we were equal. Um, but of course, some are more equal than others. <laughs> that's the saying goes. Mike was Mike was, you know, extraordinary. Um, he was. We wanted a physician, um, you know, at a at a at a, at a mid- moderate level, maybe the level I was at, or a little higher. But we got, you know, we got that in spades with Mike. We got somebody who had a illustrious career and had seen so many investigations and had mentored so many people and been all over the world in his career, as we've written about in the paper. So you know, we were. I think we saw that, and so we were essentially willing to take. Like okay, so his pace may not be as quick as as, as mine, but at least it, we could you know we could accommodate that. In the end, what was amazing was he was he did it he, nine to six every day, you know, day after day. So so that's why we took him, and so you know, like I said, it paid it paid dividends. And and he wasn't then at CDC at the time. 
is he was he came in from outside? No, no, he, no. He was at CDC. Uh, he was so so. Yeah, he. If I recall, and David may remember, um, he was in the Commission Corps for I don't know twenty five ish years. He retired from the Corps. I think immediately became a civilian, a GS civilian, and then um, <clears throat> then made his way over to uh, to us. I believe that was the trajectory. Yeah. In the, yeah. I think I think that's correct, Ro. And um, you know, it's interesting listening to you um, tell your story about Mike in 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 later years. Of course, I knew him earlier, and in fact, I think Mike had roughly a fifty or sixty year career, maybe fifty five years at CDC, which could be a record or close to it. And uh, some of that time was before I showed up in nineteen seventy six. Um, in fact, uh, quite a bit before my time. But um, some of it was during my time, and I got and I knew Mike well. After I left CDC in 1982, I continued to have a relationship with him. But I saw a different part of his career. I didn't see him and work with him as an older man. I worked with him when he was sort of in his prime. And um, uh, but I'm not surprised what you what you tell me about his work in the EOC um, because he did like challenges and. Um, and I think that, um, you know, this idea we have that older people don't have stamina, yeah, I think at, at Mike's age, you know, you have intellectual stamina. You may be, you know, maybe not able to run the 50-hour dash like you used to, but you can still think and you can still be useful, and not so much with technical knowledge as with wisdom, experience, and perspective on things. That's one of the things Mike had because he had, you know, uh, an enormous number of experiences during the prime part of his career um, in parasitology and tropical medicine in general and international training and uh, just a whole bunch of different things. And uh, by the time he got to be an older man, say in his 60s and older, um, you know, he had a wealth of experience he could draw on to see things in their context and in a big picture sort of a way, which is something that is easier for an older experienced person to do and not so easy for a younger, sharp, bright young person to do. So, uh, but it's, it's great to hear your stories of him in the EOC. Mine are, are quite a bit different, but uh, I, I saw Mike, I think, at the peak of his powers, and he was a pretty impressive guy. Yeah, no, I think you're right. And then the question is, like, you know, as we say with diseases, as you know very well, where is the peak? You know, and, and we, thought, we thought we were getting Mike after his peak, and in some ways the peak kind of continued, you know. And, and I, just, I would just um, kind of build on what you're saying. And, and you know, one of the special memories about Mike, I remember, was, um, you know, the, as I mentioned, the EOC was a fast-paced operation. Um, and Mike, being a good, you know, strong scientist, really, the CDC does, focuses on the, the specificity, right, of diseases. They want to be right. They don't always want to be fast. But we in the EOC really had to focus on this um, balance between sensitivity and specificity. You know, we, we didn't want to be too fast to be wrong, um, but we also didn't want to wait for all the information and then be right. slow. You know, so we had... We had this balance, and I think the GDD Operation Center was kind of born in that, that time, kind of post nine eleven, and um, and and during that time when you know the post SARS and, yeah. and what have you, international health regulations. So it was a really, it was a balance. And I just remember one of the memories I remember with Mike was um, just how he was so 
impressed um, with with our cutting edge systems, you know, uh, to find and report diseases. I, we were talking, as you, you know, as, as we've noted, he is a veterinarian and a physician, so he was always thinking about those kinds of things. You know, like what are the diseases if they're in humans? What what are we seeing in animals? Um, and uh, he just was so excited to be, um, you know, so learning these new systems where we could find, like we wrote the paper, one dead cow in the middle of Saudi. Saudi Arabia, you know, um, what, is it, what is it? Is it a hallmark of is it just animal diseases or is it is it human disease? Um, and so that was something that I I remember, and, you know, and he he a lot of it was IT, you know, and IT is as you as you said, you know, David, you alluded to, IT has been kind of more of this sort of you know a recent phenomenon, right, in the sense of the importance of IT uh, and and now the merger with with medical, you know, and public health. So he would, you know, he would ask me for a lot of help on IT. And not everybody in the operations center had patience for that. <laughs> but I have, a, I have a little yeah. bit of a background in computer science. And so, you know, he would take note cards out of his shirt pocket. And he would write down what I said. You know, or he would write anything down that could help him. Yeah. And, you know, one of the, one of the three memories is he had this essential tremor, right? But he, it didn't matter. He didn't type. He wrote on that note card, and he put it, and he kept it, and he pulled it out, you know, months down the road. He's like, hey, I got it right here. You know? And that's the way it was in those days. I even had the same experience. You know, we, those of us who are physicians, we all are used to having little note cards or little pads to write so-called scut notes, little, you know, to-do lists when we go and see our patients uh, in the morning. And, uh, you know, when Mike, it's interesting to think about, younger people don't realize there was a world before computers. When Mike was an EIS officer, all he was issued was a slide rule at a desk and a telephone, and that was it. There was nothing else. There was no electronics, not even calculators in those days. So, you know, his, his trajectory was over a long period of time, which encompassed in an incredible change in the technology and the techniques of epidemiology. And um, he, you know, bridged that, and um, he did well at the beginning, he did well at the end. Ro, I want to pick up on something you said about his MD and DVM degrees, because I think um, it's important that, you know, there, until about 10 years ago, there was no such thing as the term One Health. And, and maybe we can say a little bit about what that is for listeners. But, um, but, but Mike was one of those people who, with his veterinary and his medical training, always saw things in a one health kind of way, which is to say that the, you know, diseases are a function of the interaction between humans, animals, and the ecosystems and the, the environments in which diseases occur. And to really understand them, you have to understand the whole big picture, not just individual parts of it. When Mike was at CDC, at least in the beginning, he dealt a lot with zoonotic diseases, diseases that are organisms are in animals in the environment, but they can be transmitted to human beings, and human beings can become infected and ill from those diseases. And, um, you know, that's not something that's new. That was known for over 100 years. But the fact that it was such an important element of disease occurrence was realized very early on by two luminaries at CDC, one of which, one of whom was Mike, and the other was Jim Steele, one of Mike's uh, mentors and a great, uh, you know, ex-CDC um, 
scientist who died a few years ago, unfortunately, close close to or at the age of a, of 100. David, let me just interject here for listeners that if they're interested, um, we also have a podcast online about Dr. Steele. Great. That's great. I didn't know that. And thanks for thanks for telling me. Um, anyways, you know, Jim Steele and, um, and, and Mike Schultz were alike. They were of a different generation, but they were alike in their broad perspective of animal and human diseases and epidemiology and epizootiology. And I think they must have. It was before my time. Um, but by the time I got to CDC, Jim was already retired, although he came back to all the EIS conferences and, uh, and became a friend. But, um, you know, these, these guys are people who saw the big picture from the beginning and they were able to shape what CDC did and how it operated going forward, not through leadership in the formal sense, but by quiet leadership interacting at the trench levels. And, uh, and I think their influence on CDC, these two men, is great and uh, probably underappreciated. Yeah, no, I, I think that's great. You mentioned that. Um, I met Jim Steele in his last probably several months, I believe, um, when Mike introduced me to him. Um, and, yeah, it was pretty amazing because we also hired a veterinarian along with, with, um, with Mike that summer of 2008. And so Mike was, you know, this sort of super combination of an MD and a DVM. We had the DVM as well, then we had me, who was kind of a hybrid. Um, but, you know, a lot of... Exactly. So this job was great for Mike because, it, you know, we, from like, you know, diseases like anthrax and, of course, H1N1 2009, which we were, you know, intimately involved with at the op, in the op center, to, you know, I mean, remember, uh, you know, babesiosis and dengue and even Ebola. So there were so many zoonotic diseases that we were um, involved with investigating that, um, that Mike really kind of always asked that question, sort of, you know, what's going on in animals? Um, and, you know, also relating that to the kind of traveler's medicine, you know, that the article that he published at Linda Venice, you know, Where Have You Been?, um, which was just um, really yeah. seminal at the time, back in, the, I think, 60s when that was published in Lancet. So, yeah, I, mean, I also think of him when I talk to Selma, his wife, I think of him as kind of a pioneer of One Health, but also, you know, as we've written in the paper, um, tropical medicine and and parasite diseases as well. Well, you know, to to carry that a little bit further, um, you know, One Health is certainly related to, uh, One Health issues are certainly related to something that became a big theme in infectious diseases and epidemiology, which is emerging infectious diseases. And um, this all began, well, it didn't all, it began centuries ago, but it began in the recent past in um, 1992 when the Institute of Medicine put out a report on the importance of emerging infectious diseases. And CDC was the first of the federal agencies to come on board with a plan, which I think was crafted by many people, including Ruth Berkelman, but many others, almost certainly with the input of um, of Mike, uh, and um, and and this um, these plans that came out of CDC and eventually other federal agencies really changed the way we do epidemiology and infectious disease research. The CDC plan was aggressive, and basically it reoriented the CDC towards 
infectious diseases again, because backing up to 1981, 10 years before the Institute of Medicine report, CDC had decided to more or less get out of the business of infectious diseases and developed uh, six centers, five new centers that were not infectious centers, because the idea was that infectious diseases were becoming controlled. Pretty soon we'd conquer them, they'd fade away, and we'd be left with chronic diseases. Then we realized that with HIV and everything, Thing that um, that wasn't true, and so CDC had to reorient back again. And um, I think that uh, the ideas and probably the activities, although I wasn't there at the time, but certainly the ideas of Mike and Jim Steele and others um, were really very relevant to the new going forward of the federal response to emerging infectious diseases. Um, I just want to throw in here that the um, EID. D journal was um, spawned from that uh, IOM report. I, I sort of said it a minute ago, but it's worth repeating that when the Institute of Medicine report came out, to many observers, it came out of the blue. Uh, and um, but CDC was very energetic at responding to it by developing new programs and having um, making new initiatives going forward in a number of different directions, one of which is the EID Journal, which has been um, under Joe McDade, I think, was the first editor. And, uh, and uh, you know, it's been enormously influential, and it's been a big, um, a big sort of crown jewel in CDC's efforts to uh, go forward by understanding that diseases are emerging and reemerging all the time, and that these emergence, resurgence events are a big part of what we have to do to respond to them. Yeah, I, I, thanks for bringing up the history uh, a little bit there, especially as sort of the you know last 30, 30 some years or so related to the changes you know with, with antimicrobial resistance and and um, just generally medical you know sort of the last thirty years have been really important years and Mike was there like you said at the at the forefront. But you know one of the things I was going to um, mention is also his um, Mike's interest in medical history. You know, and I I, I used to sit next to him in the cube. And so, you know, it was easy for me to, to help him with his, his questions on IT or discuss various things with him, various, uh, you know, minutiae, oftentimes with important minutiae. Um, but one of the, I just remember one, one of my memories also is related to sort of medical history. And David, you have, may have some as well. But um, one is when he gave me a book and he said, Ro, I want you to have this book. And I said, oh, thanks. What was the book? And it was a book called Genius on the Edge. The double, I'm trying to remember, the double bizarre life of William Stuart Halstead. And as you probably know, David, well, William Stuart Halstead was one of the famous Johns Hopkins physicians. And um, I had gone to Hopkins for my doctorate, and so he gave me a copy as well as one to Ray and Scott. And I, because I was so impressed with Mike and, and was so fond of him, I, I think I read it in, in a week. Um, it was also a bit of a page turner, but what was really interesting was not only was it an easy read, but, uh, and, you know, Mike had this, I think, um, membership in the Atlanta Medical History Society, I believe. Um, and so not only was it a page turner, but it was, and it was about my school, but it was also about this the medical history in a really interesting way. Dr. William Stewart Halstead, who um, is kind of noted for um, being the, one of the discoverers of anesthesia. Um, as well as in uh, aseptic techniques. And anesthesia, of course, as we know, you know, cocaine and the canes, 
um, or sort of relates to, you know, so Halstead has this double bizarre life where on one, six months a year, he's doing amazing surgery with great outcomes at Johns Hopkins Hospital. And the other six months a year, he's in one of the Carolinas, completely sequestered um, and most likely using cocaine, you know, on a very regular basis. <laughs> so fascinating story, which then relates to kind of the Robert Louis Stevenson um, hypothesis that Mike had, you know, that Robert Louis Stevenson, you know, had um, Qatar and had a lot of physical uh, ailments during his life and basically was a very regular user of cocaine and, and probably died from cocaine. So I, I remember that, and he gave a talk in one of his, uh, one of his talks at CDC. Um, so that was one of my special memories of him. Did, did you get involved in any of um, his history-related activities? Well, yeah. I mean, I, well, I think one of the things that uh, that bound Mike and I together after I, I left CDC in 1982, and of course Mike stayed on at CDC uh, until the end of his life in 2015. But um, during that time, probably the thing that bound us together most was our shared interest in medical history. And um, at some point, maybe around 20 years ago, I wrote a uh, paper, a history paper, that um, talked about the death of Robert Louis Stevenson, who actually almost certainly had tuberculosis and probably died of a, of a pulmonary hemorrhage. But um, and, and that really excited Mike. Of course, Mike had written this thing about the Robert Louis Stevenson's uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde much before that time. But he, real, he kept realizing, you know, as we, as we crossed each other's paths, mostly at meetings, sometimes at CDC over the decades, we kept realizing that we had shared history interests, such as Robert Louis Stevenson. Of course, you know, he wrote about Robert Louis Stevenson before he knew that I was going to do that, and I hadn't remembered or wasn't thinking about his paper on Robert Louis Stevenson. But I think the, I think the thing is, when you're a physician and you're interested in medical history, you keep covering the same territory again and again, but from a different angle. And we kept doing that. Many different times we'd meet, and he'd ask me about something I had written, and I'd ask him about something he'd written, and we'd just get going on all this medical history stuff. He loved it, and I came to love it too. I never trained in it, but I, I just came to enjoy medical history. It's very, people have said this before that the interest in medical history and the interest in epidemiology are in some undescribed way closely related. It's all about puzzle-fitting, problem-solving. Yeah. I want to interject in here also for listeners that um, several years ago, uh, Dr. Morins did a article, uh, our special category called Another Dimension, um, on uh, Cotton Mathers and his family that died of measles. And um, he, uh, in addition to the article, he also did a podcast where he reads from that um, that another dimension and it's it's very moving so listeners should look for that on our podcast list also yeah thanks thanks, thanks for reminding me of that I'd, I'd sort of semi forgotten that but uh, I, I have a lot of interest in, in medical history and there's a lot of great stories uh, some of them tragic and sad like the story of Cotton Mather and his family like the story of Robert Louis Stevenson but um, uh, you know, if there's anybody listening who is interested in medical history, there's a lot out there. You'll find fascinating stories everywhere. Uh, I was going to say, David, when you mentioned the uh, Robert Louis Stevenson, you know, that he did, the piece that he did, and then that you did, did you you and Mike talk about that? I mean, like you said, the, the sort of cause of death were, you know, were different from him to what has been established, I think, in history. But did you discuss that, or did you ever have any disagreements with Mike? 
We did discuss that. I don't think we had any disagreement about that. We did have a disagreement about something else, which I'll I'll mention in a minute. But uh, I think that um, you know, I, I mean, I think historians know how Robert Louis Stevenson died, and and that's not to take away from Mike's paper about cocaine use because the cocaine use in the in Mike's paper was relating to the writing of uh, Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde, which was many years before his death, and you know, like all adults in that era who had tuberculosis. Robert Louis Stevenson probably had it for many years, um, and he eventually died in in the country of Samoa. And by the way, I have uh, I have visited Robert Louis Stevenson's grave on top of the highest mountain in Samoa. It's a wonderful place, a beautiful place, and that's where he has to be buried with his famous poem, Requiem, carved on his uh, sarcophagus. But anyways... So we didn't disagree about that. Mike and I did not disagree about how Robert Louis Stevenson died. We both appreciated each other's work and enjoyed each other's work. But we did have a disagreement the one time we published a historical paper together, which was on the subject of the great epidemiologist Charles Nicole, who worked in the Pasteur Institute in Tunisia, and and who elucidated the the um the the mechanism of spread of typhus and um and uh, i it's uh, i think what happened is mike and i met at a meeting and he told me he was writing this was a photo quiz one of the that sarah mentioned earlier um it was to be a photo quiz and um he was telling me he was planning to write it and i mentioned to him something that he apparently had not known which was that charles Nicole may have been the first person to actually isolate, using the term isolate to describe something that was different back in those days, but isolate the 1918 virus according to the 1918 pandemic influenza virus, according to how they defined isolation at the time. And Mike was fascinated by that because here was one of his heroes um, who had done something heroic or important, at least, that was you know, totally different from the work that he was he is known for nowadays. So he asked me to join him as an author on the paper, on the photo quiz paper, which I did. And we were exchanging manuscripts back and forth. And, uh, you know, we he would add something and I would add something and edit and whatever. You know how it goes back and forth with scientists who are writing papers. And at one point, I thought that there wasn't enough about... Nicole's uh, probable isolation of the 1918 virus, and so I beefed up that paragraph a little bit, and he was not happy with it, and he let me know firm in a friendly, collegial way, as always, he was a gentleman, but very firmly that um, this was not a paper about influenza, this was a paper about Nicole's most important work, and it needed to stay that way. Mm. So... I was quiet after that. He got his way, and he's probably right. Um, another another anecdote uh, is relates to um, a phone conversation we were having. Probably, I'm going to say around 2010. Uh, me and um, you know here in the Washington D.C. area at NIH and Mike in Atlanta, and it was about a, um, a quotation of Pasteur, and uh, he was saying to me something about he had just helped a friend write a manuscript in which uh, the friend wanted to quote uh, a saying of Pasteur's that chance favors the prepared mind. Um, he, he said it, I don't know if he said it in French or in English, but, but, I, but I immediately said on the phone, well, of course, that's not what Pasteur actually said. 
And the reason I said that, because I had actually read Pasteur's words in French, and I knew exactly what they were at the time. I don't remember it now. But uh, I knew that the quotation, Chance Savers, The Prepared Mind, is not a literal translation of what Pasteur said. So I mentioned that to Mike, and he was absolutely mortified. Here he had, in theory, what he was thinking is, here he had given his friend the quotation and verified that it was correct, and the friend was publishing it in a paper, and it was too late to change the manuscript to, you know, to change how it was going to be and was published. So mortified, he asked me to, you know, go back and give him evidence and things like that. And I realized I'd stepped on a minefield, so I went back to the original Pasteur paper from, I think, 1870 or something, it was a long time ago, and um, I thought about a number of different translations of the actual words in French, and I decided that Chance Savers the Prepared Mind was a a good paraphrasing of it, and let's just leave it like that. So I assured him that (laughs) it was okay to say that. It wasn't a literal translation, but translators face these kind of things all the time. And a paraphrasing-type translation that conveys the sense of what Pasteur meant rather than the exact words is probably fine. And he was so relieved at that. (laughs) And the relief, and I tell that story only because... The, the the endearing thing about that is Mike, because of what I said, Mike worried that he had brought harm to a friend of his, and that was just a terrible thought for him. And um, and I realized that it was a terrible thought for him, and so I had to make sure that I, despite what had popped out of my mouth, I had I had to make sure that I let him know that what he did was good for his friend, not a, not not a bad thing. Mm. <laughs> Yeah, well, so that's interesting. I I, um, I know it's in the paper, but I about your your little mild disagreement. But um, you know, Mike and I had disagreements every day, and and it was really yeah yeah. And it was, but they were disagree. They were they weren't controversial. They were very collegial. So you know what what, what we did in a very operational manner um, was we put together this GDD operations in our daily report every day, Monday through Friday. Um, and published it by five or six. So we were writing things together every day, which was really exciting. And there were events like dengue or H1N1 or nodding syndrome, which was one uh, specific disease that he right. and I got involved with investigating a bit. Um, and the re- daily report, you know, was the culmination of the day's work, five or six events put together by the team. And it was an internal CDC report. But what was really interesting is, you know, we would sometimes push to get it out because it's 5 or 6 p.m. We've had a long day. And he he wouldn't have it. He's like, we need to be exactly right on the disease name, on the spelling, on the epidemiologic terms. Is it, you know, is it imported? Is it autochthonous? You know, all of those specifics, the grammar. You know, and it was really, uh, you know, and he really focused. Some of the analysts didn't always appreciate that, but I, I sort of enjoyed his really attention to his attention to detail and the fact that it was really important to get it right. So I was going to say, among other things, that harks back to the era that Mike and I were at CDC and the influence of the MMWR, then edited by Mike Gregg, and uh, the managing editor Francis Porche. And uh, they were absolute hawks in the same manner. If you wrote a three-sentence 
MMWR paper. It would go through 20 edits, and it would come back from Francis and her team and Mike with red ink spilled all over it. Everything had to be perfect. Everything had to be researched. Every comma, every semicolon had an argument around it. And um, it was just, that was the way it was. You had to be perfect in what you said and perfect in using the English language. And moreover, because even back 40, 50 years ago, Everybody realized that the MMWR was read by people who, some of whom had English as a second language. Everything had to be completely understandable by people who had a limited uh, use of the English, limited knowledge of the English language. So I think, I think Mike got that, uh, at least in part, as I did get it, from the experience of being at CDC at a time when perfection in communication was considered essential for every scientist. Yeah, and, and it's, it's a little different than MMWR. We were writing for a scientific audience, and so we wanted to be up to snuff in every different disease area, whether it's bacterial, special pathogens, or viral, you know, or, or, or vector-borne diseases. So I just remember, you know, each, each event was like a case conference. You know, we would discuss it and, and make sure it was correct and, and make sure we, you know, we reflected the, the right, you know, suspected, probable, all the right ways of describing, um, you know, the event. It was a real, it was a real joy. And, and he actually, um, in the end, was just kind of like, all right, I'm, you know, they voted me down, so all right, I, I'm going to go with consensus, you know. So it was a really, really good sort of didactic, you know, discourse. And that really, I, what's interesting, it had almost a secondary or latent effect, and it actually helped us be better, you know, help the team be yeah. better. Even though we knew it was an internal report and it was like, oh, it's not being published anywhere. But we wanted, you know, he strove for excellence and it pushed us all, you know, which was really wonderful. That was one of yeah. my memories of that. Ro, if, you, uh, if you're willing, I'd like to ask you a little bit about what, what Mike was like as a human being, as a guy to work with, um, and his um, impact on others around him. You said a little bit about that, and uh, I've thought a lot about it, too, but uh, tell me more about how, you, how it struck you. What kind of a guy was he for, for listeners who never knew him? You know, how did he come across with his colleagues? What was his demeanor, his way of interacting with other people, with other scientists and the public and people in the developing world? I, you know, again, so I think, you know, you and I are good in the yin and yang situation, or at least two parts of his life, in that I saw him a little different, in that he, first of all, I saw him when, quite honestly, his religion played a larger part in his life. So Judaism, and specifically Orthodox Judaism, um, played a larger part in his life than when he was younger, when he was, I think, conservative or conservative. Um, so that actually really had a lot of sort of knock-on effects um, on things like, you know, his behavior, his diet, and other, other activities. He was, in my mind, just an absolute mensch, you know, to use that term. Um, we wrote that he was, he was an Omolubi, right? We wrote, you wrote that wor- uh, word, um, I think... Um, what was amazing about Mike was he, he really cared um, about excellence, but, but he also, he was very agreeable, I mean, in the sense that he wanted everybody to work together. Um, and I know that we've said he, could, he was kind of shy and in the background, but in reality, when he felt very strongly, and you know this well, when he felt strongly about something, he spoke up. And he, he definitely voiced his opinion um, in a very, in a very uh, you know, it wasn't a push it down your throat manner, but 
but he, he was, I mean, I yeah. think that, the word mentor really comes to mind, you know, and, and I think that the other thing that I think about a lot, because in some ways he was, you know, even older than my father, um, he, he had a very strong moral compass. And I think that is something that has struck me. And when I look at Mike's picture uh, and when I talk to Selma, I remember those, those, those attributes of Mike, you know, the moral compass and the, the ideals that he lived, you know, he really lived his values. And I think that's what, that's why he had such a strong impact on people because he, he was always helpful. He was always smiling. Um, he was always there, present and able to help. And he would never say no. He was always willing to be there. Yeah, I think I think you said it well. He had a tremendous generosity of spirit. He was never seeking things for himself, accolades or awards. He was he seemed to be happiest when he was helping others achieve their goals and their dreams. Um, he was endlessly generous of his time. He genu- he genuinely took pleasure in the successes of others. And he was always there to help them. He was not in any way afraid to be in the background. He was just as happy to be in the background, letting other people shine as he was to be in the forefront, if not more so. Um, and um, you're right. I didn't see the religious side of him ever. I don't think I ever heard him make any reference to any religious or even spiritual thing. But in some ways, he was a very spiritual person. In some ways, that's a, I use the term in a secular sense, not in a religious sense. Um, he had those values of just giving to others, um, serving others as being the highest uh, goal in life. He, you know, I, as you said, one of the reasons he is so beloved, and I think the word beloved is really the right word, is because of his generosity to so many people in so many different situations over several generations and around the world. He was just a unique person in that respect. Yeah, very well said, David. I completely agree. Yeah, we definitely definitely miss him, you know, talking about him and, and um and writing the paper with you was was a real pleasure and so I want to thank you, you know, um for, for that opportunity as well. Well, same, same to you. Um, let's just, let me, uh, if, uh, there's one last thing I'd like to um, ask you, maybe putting you on the spot a little bit, but um, how do you think Mike would like to be remembered by us and by others? Yeah, uh, thank you. Um, I think, yeah, it's a good question. I feel like we are, you know, as we like to say in science, we don't really... Only God knows the truth, but I think we've come pretty close to it with, with how we remember him now. I would say that God and family first, um, and I, I say that because I saw a lot of that in my time with him, you know, over the, the 11, the, the eight years that I knew him, um, you know, the time in the operation center as well as afterwards, because um, I stayed in touch with him and the family afterwards, and I still am. Um, as you are as well. So, so I think those two, he put those first. I just remember every day at five o'clock, he called Selma and asked, all right, boss, when do I want to, when do you want me home? And that was what he, then he would tell me, he would report to me. All right, bro, I got another 30 minutes. All right, bro, I got an hour. Um, and so those two were the most, he, he was very proud of his family and his grandkids. Um, and then really, and then work. You know, he was really um, a forerunner in many, many fields, tropical medicine, parasitic diseases, one health. We've talked about them. Um, and I would say those are the most important things that he would want to be remembered for. And then lastly, kind of what you said, which is how the impact that he had on people. And, and you, you know, the, the, 
the piece that yeah. was the, um, the comments written in CDC Connects um, after his death, um, how everybody just outpoured, you know, love and, and joy and, and so many similar uh, similar comments. And so that's what I I think that I think that uh, we've come pretty close to what he would want. That's my that's my feeling. Yeah. Great, thank you. I'll just add if if I can that. Um, I, um, you know, I don't know what, I don't know what he would have said if he, uh, how he would have wished to be remembered, but I, I, I can speculate and, um, and I'd like to speculate by quoting something that I said to somebody else, not, not to do with Mike, but I think Mike would have said the same thing. And this was about 15 years ago, uh, an ex-CIS officer, now ex-CIS officer named Roger Bernier asked me this question one time. We were talking about heavy life issues and so on. And he said, um, he just, we were standing in the hallway and he said, David, tell me, um, if you could be at your own funeral, listening to all the people standing around the casket, saying the things that whatever they were saying, what would you like them to be saying? What would you like to hear? And I think the answer I gave uh, Roger is I think what Mike would have said, which is something like this. Going out, he left the world in a little bit better place than he found it coming in. Hmm. Yeah, that's what I said. Very nice. Well, on that note, I thank you both for taking this time to talk to me to remember Dr. Schultz. And thank you, listeners, for joining us. You can read the full July 2019 article, In Memoriam, Myron Gilbert Schultz, 1935 to 2016, online at cdc.gov eid. I'm Sarah Gregory for Emerging Infectious Diseases. For the most accurate health information, visit cdc.gov or call 1-800-CDC-INFO.